Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, I have a very important question for you. Like, a very (laughs) important question for you. I'm all ears. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you like celery? And if the next time you came over for dinner, I presented you with an entire bunch of celery, like... (laughs) like the whole thing that comes in the bag, right? As your entree and said, bon appetit. How would you feel about that? First of all, I'd just like to say I really, really, really dislike celery. (laughs) But I also feel like this is a trick question because, I mean, we have been known to throw down an entire pizza together a time or two. So what's going on here? Yeah. (laughs) And and we don't mean a personal pizza. We mean like a big-ass New York pizza. Yes. Um, Well, I'm asking you about celery because I recently went to quote-unquote beauty school and there was a surprising amount of celery involved in this process and also (laughs) a shocking number of oranges, like so many oranges. So So many many oranges. oranges. Yes. Listeners, you may recall back in January when April posted on our Instagram feed about a diet she was about to go on that involved, well, eating, I think, 10 to 12 oranges a day. Mm -hmm. And we got a lot of comments from you about this. Namely, why, oh, why, oh, why, April, would you do that? (laughs) Yes. So no worries, everyone. I'm here, safe and sound. I did not turn orange. And in fact, I still actually like oranges. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep eating all the mandarins until they go out of season. But celery, not so much. No, no more celery. <laughs> and as April mentioned then, this was all part of a six-week experiment she was undertaking into one of the hottest trends of the 1940s, the Dewberry Success Course. And it really turned out to be so much more than just a diet. It incorporated exercise routines, posture tips, and beauty regimes. Yeah. When I first came face-to-face with the pamphlets for this course, I realized that I was really kind of being presented with a step-by-step guide into the shoes of a woman from the 1940s. And Cass, as you know, on the show, we've already talked a lot about the history of unrealistic and institutionalized mm-hmm. beauty standards on the show. And the DeBerry Success Course presented itself as this really great opportunity to explore just what types of pressures a woman like ourselves, might have faced more than 70 years ago. Right. And I'm sure our listeners are just as interested as I am to know just how different things were back then. But I also have a sneaking suspicion that there might be a revelation or two that some things have actually not changed as much as we would think. And we will talk about that in a bit. But Cass, I think we could all probably benefit from a little context. So I'm hoping we can do a brief history of charm schools. Definitely not something we are as familiar with today. And I think it's an important distinction to note the difference between charm schools and what were known as finishing schools. The terms are 
quite often used interchangeably. So historically, finishing schools of the 19th and early 20th centuries were essentially elite boarding schools for young women in their late teens and early 20s who were from wealthy families. So perhaps somewhat light on rigorous academics, the students typically learned a foreign language, they had music and art lessons, etiquette training, and courses on managing household staff, etc., as one does in school, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, your staff. <laughs> And this did vary a little bit from institution to institution, exactly what the curricula was and how much emphasis put on, you know, academics or scholastics. But I think that it's really fair to say that the point of finishing schools at this time was to prepare these young women for marriage, you know, to quote unquote finish or polish off their domestic and social skills so that they were ready to wed. And and we are talking early marriages here because it was not uncommon at this time for some of these women to marry at a young age, like as early as 16 or 17, although the average for men, however, was much later, being closer to 25. Yeah, and that really reminded me that both of my grandmothers actually married quite young. My, I believe my mom's mom was 16 and my dad's mom was 17. Um, my grandmother Lillian actually married my grandfather right before he went off to fight in World War II. And then she went back to finish high school. So <laughs> a little bit wow. of a different time. Uh, but we should note that finishing schools were for young women from more affluent families, April. Whatever was a young lady of a marriageable age to do if her family could not afford to send her to boarding school, however was she to compete in this marriage market without the proper training? Yes. So this is exactly where charm schools come into play. And they were really prevalent during the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And they offered usually day programs in deportment. They offered vocal coaching, makeup and skincare tips, etiquette training, you know, some of the same types of things that their counterparts who were attending finishing school um, soaked up at school if they hadn't already learned about these things from their mothers who were typically socialites. Yeah, and these types of charm schools proliferated in heavily populated urban areas, oftentimes operated by modeling agencies, but they could also be found in department stores. So places like Bloomingdale's, Sears and Roebuck, and Montgomery Wards all offered charm schools, often for free, as it was really a client service and also a means of converting the teen attendees into lifelong loyal customers. And these were incredibly popular all over the country. An article I read in Women's Wear Daily from 1959 noted how the Sticks department store in St. Louis had more than 1,300 young women aged 10 to 17 enrolled in their six-week course. That's a lot. That is a lot. And these courses were really a unique form of advertising. They were a way to promote their brands and sell products and particularly beauty products. But alas, the department stores were not the first one to come up with this rather ingenious marketing tactic because in 1940, the DuBerry Cosmetics Company had beat them all to the punch and with a mail-order course, no less. Yeah, so a little backstory on the DuBerry brand. It's a bit of an old-fashioned American success story that actually started all the way back in the 1880s when Richard Hudnut opened a luxury perfume shop in New York City on Broadway in what is now the Financial District. It was actually just around the corner from where One World Trade Center is now. His son, also named Richard, joined the family business eventually and expanded it into a full-fledged cosmetics line by 1903, which was touted as the, quote, first American-made cosmetics line. 
Yeah, and Cass, before we go any further, I would like to give a quick shout-out to fellow fashion historian Catherine Amoroso-Leslie, who is a professor at Kent State University, because she wrote a really wonderful 2014 article that was published in the journal Clothing Cultures about the DeBerry Success Course, and this is where we got some of this early history of the company from. So, Catherine, we're standing on the shoulders of your fantastic research and and officially citing you as our source. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Uh, yeah. Um, um, and also, Cass, I'd like to point out that if it's already not obvious that this name, Dewberry, is, of course, a reference to my former burlesque persona, Madame Dewberry. <laughs> Naturally, making you 135 years old, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm kidding, clearly. Um, Both of these are references to one Madame du Barry, who was the official mistress of Louis XV. Um, You know, she was this renowned beauty. So it makes perfect sense to name a cosmetic company after after somebody who was famous for her beauty. And the du Barry brand was a smashing success. You know, by the 1930s, du Barry products were sold in more than 12,000 stores across the United States. And the brand retailed in both drugstores and department stores, which probably meant that it was a super recognizable name to many customers. Um, and, and in fact, Catherine notes in her article that in the 1950s, Dewberry was, quote, more popular than Revlon. And this popularity can probably be attributed, at least in part, to the huge success of its beauty course offerings. So in 1939, DeBerry opened a salon in the family-owned Richard Hudnut building in the Flatiron neighborhood of New York. But this was no ordinary salon. It was dubbed the DeBerry Success School, as soon-to-be debutante could, quote-unquote, make herself over head-to-toe in a, quote, routine as rigorous as boot camp. So for a little over $4,500 today, ladies came to the salon for three hours a day, five days a week for a duration of six weeks, after which they emerged, quote unquote, slimmer and lovelier with a new gleam in their eyes and new glints in the hair. In the process, they learned the tricks of makeup, learned how to watch their weight, take care of their skin, hair and nails. When the mother of these debutantes saw how these daughters had been made over, they wanted to go to beauty school themselves. Which perhaps they did, because by 1942, Dewberry advertisements that we found in Vogue claimed that 50,000 women had taken the course in two years. But surely not all at the New York salon. That would be crazy. (laughs) Right, 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 right. I don't even know how they would get that many people in. Um, But this is the point where Mary Brooks Picken enters the scene, and some of our listeners might be familiar um, with with her name, and that's because in the early 20th century, she was a leading name in home economics due to her Women's Institute of Domestic Arts and Sciences, which was a wildly successful correspondence school. And it's estimated that more than a quarter of a million women, Cass, subscribed to this correspondence school. You know, it taught sewing and needle arts, basically by way of instructional pamphlets that you received in the mail. And there was kind of like some back and forth. You would send in your homework assignments. They'd come back to you graded. And we have more than three dozen of these titles, of these pamphlets in our collection at FIT. Um, And and I don't think that's anywhere remotely near all of them. There, There was lots of different things. So this is basically the 1940s version of our online courses, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> 
And while they largely deal with sewing techniques, a selection of these pamphlets are about beauty and style. So you have titles like Dress and Look Slender or Your Colors and Clothes Becoming and Distinctive Dress. So it isn't really an entire surprise that when Pickin met the president of Duberry, Gustavus Adolphus, in 1931, on a return trip from Paris, that the two had a lot to discuss. Adolphus was looking for innovative ways to promote the DeBerry brand, and this seemed a no-brainer to Mary. The answer was a beauty and improvement course women could do from home. Mary and her business partner slash husband, who is, whose name was G. Lynn Sumner, we're just going to call him Lynn from now on, he owned an advertising business, incidentally. But um, after meeting with um, Adolphus, they developed a six-week makeover course, which incorporated and promoted the Dewberry products. So unlike the modeling school and department store charm schools, which were often free, or for, you know, relatively little cost, the Dewberry Home Course was priced to finance itself. And it included daily lessons in diet, exercise, posture, and grooming. And despite the fact that there was almost no financial risk in launching this venture, Adolphus initially, after they presented to him, balked. Um, He thought at that time that it was entirely too radical of a concept. So, Cass, I guess it seems that he really wasn't Looking for innovation, right? <laughs> because, I mean, Mary, Mary had a proven track record. She had been doing this to great success with the Women's Institute since 1916. Yes, but he did soon learn the error of his ways, perhaps realizing that his elitist price points excluded a huge demographic of American women. So, in 1940, the DeBerry Success Course was launched at a fraction of the cost of the in-person treatments at the salon school. It basically would have been a little over $500 in today's dollars. And it was also designed to be six weeks, as Sumner wrote in his 1952 book, How I Learned the Secrets of Advertising, quote, Our theory was that if a woman used one group of beauty preparations exclusively for six weeks and during that time received instructions for using them correctly, she would be aware of such beneficial results that she would become a regular customer. In the early 1940s, advertisements for the DuBerry courses exploded onto the pages of newspapers and magazines. And I think it's a really interesting point of context here um, that the United States, of course, officially entered World War II in late December of 1941. So a lot of these advertisements for the course positioned themselves in a sort of patriotic light. You know, they were encouraging women to become healthier in order to participate in the war effort. And one ad in particular features before and after pictures of a uniformed Claire Scott, who was a dubbed a quote-unquote beauty on duty. And the ad goes on to explain how she lost 22 pounds in the success school. And the ad reads, quote, she had tried to do defense work, but found it too tiring. The moment she graduated from success school, she signed up as an air raid warden, and her newly found fitness is standing her in good stead. As additional proofs of her success, Miss Scott has also been asked to pose for a famous fashion photographer, and she has a handsome new soldier beau. Oh, thank God. Or boyfriend. (laughs) I just love how they use beau back then. and, And this particular ad even gives... Claire's original measurements, as well as her new ones after graduation. 
And Cass, and kind of one of the more funny features of this ad, it also has photos of some other women who were engaged in, quote unquote, the new exercises for success and defense work, an integral part of the DuBerry Success School course. I mean, what are new exercises for success and defense work? <laughs> it was basically <laughs> calisthenics. Yeah, and the intersection of beauty, fashion, and war propaganda is really nothing new and extends as far back as at least World War I, although I'm sure it goes back even further. But the, this idea that it was a woman's patriotic duty to be beautiful for her husband. So in her essay, Gender, Science, and Fitness Exercise in the United States in the 20th Century, author Martha Verbrugg writes about World War II that, quote, improving levels of fitness and well-being became key elements of sustaining morale on the home front, accompanied by a new, more active visual aesthetic promoting the healthy, energetic, and resilient individual. To stay well, both physically and mentally, was increasingly seen as the personal responsibility of every individual. And of course, just how these women were active had to remain, of course, within the box of socially acceptable feminine activity. And we'll get more on that in a moment. Yeah. And, and maybe it's because these women were engaged in greater numbers in jobs during World War II that the DuBerry Success School was offering both daytime and evening classes. And there was also a little coupon and all the ads cut out at the bottom. Um, so you could fill in your address to send away for a brochure. And there's a box in this little coupon to check if you're interested in the budget course, which is, of course, the home version. And we're going to find out more about that right after this sponsor break. Welcome back. Okay, April, now that we have a bit of context, I think we are all pretty curious to know more about the course itself. You and I have only kind of discussed how things went. So why don't you tell me some more? Yeah, well, it was definitely an interesting journey. Um, and my initial reaction to the course was that it was a little overwhelming and initially confusing on how to use it. And the entire course consists of six weekly folios. And then within each of those folios are individual daily lessons. And these daily lessons are printed on both sides that fold out in like this kind of like confusing way into eight individual pages. Um, and, and, and it's because how they're printed that it's difficult to kind of follow the initial progression of the information. But there is a quick guide in which you get your basic daily exercises and your, very important here, elimination diet for the first week. Oh, the infamous diet. Let's start with that, shall we? Because this makes a pretty big impression. And I actually think many of us can relate to it. I know I have tried and failed at many a diet. And how did you do on this one in particular with all your oranges and celery? <laughs> yes. Well, the gist of it is that it's um, a one-week kind of cleanse to, quote, begin the reduction of body weight. And they stress in print that this is not a starvation diet. Um, and they claim that it's actually a generous amount. And if at any point you are struggling with this diet, the course recommends a few different things, which include drinking water, turning on the music and dancing, anything to distract yourself, do your exercises <laughs> and your beauty ritual. And my personal favorite, which is to either whistle or sing to avoid sympathizing with yourself. <laughs> okay, so next time I'm hungry, I'm just going to start dancing and singing to myself. <laughs> yeah. And so 
What exactly was this diet? Was it generous? Um, I would say yes and no. It was definitely like, in terms of the amount, it was a lot of food to consume in one day. That's for sure. Um, but I'm, I'm going to take you through this uh, diet. Uh, are, are you sure you're ready for this? Because it's about to get a little nanners. I can't wait. Please proceed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So upon getting up, you're supposed to drink one or two glasses of water. Great. Yeah, totally good. reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're supposed to do your exercises, which we will get to shortly. And it was like about like 20 minutes of exercises or so. And then this would be followed by a breakfast of two oranges, one pear, apple, or peach, and coffee or tea with no milk or sugar at all. And then at 11 a.m., you get to eat again. You get two more oranges and a glass of water. And then at lunch, you know, presumably like around 1, 1.30, you have a bowl of vegetable soup, which they recommend making yourself. And Cass, you know, I love to cook. So I'm all for, you know, cooking at home. It's a bit of a hobby. <laughs> but um, what's your ideal vegetable soup? I mean, I guess, does chicken noodle count? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, I, on the DeBerry course, I don't think it does. I don't think it does. Because I'm going to tell you about what it was. But I mean, I, I like veggie soup, especially if there's like chickpeas and zucchini in mm -hmm. it. Yum. Um, but this is the Dewberry recipe for the soup that you're supposed to have, which includes carrots, celery leaves, cabbage, lettuce leaves, onion, parsley, all of which are cooked in water. And then you're supposed to add to this one can of unseasoned tomato juice and serve. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> if you're feeling extra fancy, you can add one squeeze of lemon, just one. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, oh, so you're saying you'd still be hungry? Don't worry, there are snacks. There are snacks built in. At 3 p.m., you could have one large glass of tomato juice, two oranges, one apple, pear, or peach, and some water. I'm beginning to sense a bit of a theme here. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And then there's dinner, which consists of one cup, not bowl, of the previously aforementioned soup. But also one whole grapefruit, which is to be served on half of a head of lettuce with, quote-unquote, beauty dressing, um, which is basically lemon juice mixed with saccharin. Yikes. We all know about that now, right? <laughs> um, but at the time, they didn't. Um, you can also have at dinner one tomato, one orange, and six stalks of celery with all the leaves and water. So it's basically like an entire bunch of celery. Yeah. I mean, I do like tomato juice, uh, but uh, that's that's about all I'm feeling here. Yeah, same. <laughs> um, we're not done yet because before you go to bed, you can have, as you guessed it, one orange, some hot water <laughs> with lemon. And they recommend that you take milk of magnesia during this time, which is, of course, a laxative every night. Um, but I absolutely did not do this. No, 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 no way. It's really actually sounding like this cleanse has zero protein, which I feel is quite problematic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah. So I, I I was struck by this too. So I threw it into my handy dandy calorie tracker app that I have on my phone, which I love. Um, and the cleanse is an insane amount of carbs. It's 89% carbs, 3% fat. And surprising, there was actually a little tiny bit of protein in the diet. There were 26 grams, or basically 8% of the total 1,263 calories. And how did you fare consuming all of this sugar? Well, mm, 
not so great, actually. Um, and I tend to have low blood sugar. And in the past, I've actually seen a nutritionist about this. So I know where my good space is in terms of eating and feeling good. And that's like 30 to 35% protein, 40% carbs, you know, 25-ish percent healthy fats. So Cass, as you and I discussed before I even did this, I was aware from the very beginning that I might not make it the entire seven days. And I did I did promise my boyfriend that I would stop if I started feeling unwell, which was which is really what happened at day three. So I made it three days, but then I stopped <laughs> after that. Understandably. But that diet is is just for the first week, right? After which you're instructed to eat as a beauty eats. And this is not a diet for the remaining six weeks, but rather it's supposed to be this manner of eating that you're supposed to adopt for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, on this eating as a beauty eats, you learn, quote, how delicious raw cabbage can be. Eat for beauty, end quote. <laughs> um, so really the, <laughs> how they're like speaking to you about eating for the rest of your life is is almost exactly the same as the cleanse, but in a slightly different permutation. Um, You can now have your fruit stewed. What does that even mean? Um, You can have a couple glasses of milk a day at lunch. They recommend you have half a piece of bread. And then at dinner, you can have a small piece of broiled meat, fowl, fish. And again, for somebody like me, that is not even remotely near enough a protein. It's, It's basically next to none. Yeah, and I know this is an extreme example, but it's really interesting how different people ate less than 100 years ago. As fashion historians, I know we run across menus all the time that were served at fashion events, and it's it's quite fascinating. There's a lot of cold liver, poached meats, fruit cups, and salads that seem quite odd to us today, but were probably standard back then. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, and I forgot to mention, too, um, no candy and little to no alcohol is allowed, um, unless, of course, you're too thin. And in that case, you're encouraged to drink sherry and port. But Cass, smoking <laughs> is definitely allowed. Oh, but of course, because I mean, smoking was definitely a given back then. The health repercussions just not being as widely known at this point. Uh, well, not really known at all. And food culture was very different as we just discussed. But let's talk about the exercise because this went hand in hand with the diet at this point. Yeah. So the exercise portion of the program seems about as equally preposterous to us today as the dietary recommendations. And there is a core set of exercises that you're supposed to do every day, and it involves a lot of spanking. And all of this is demonstrated by way of these actually really adorable illustrations. And there are more than a thousand illustrations in the course. And I have to say that the graphic design is one of the most charming things about the whole thing. And we will, of course, post images of all of these exercises on Instagram. Back to where you said spanking. I don't think we can let that go. (laughs) (laughs) No. So there's thigh spanking, calf spanking, upper arm spanking, the single hip spank, the double hip spank. Almost all the exercises involve laying or sitting on the floor and moving an arm or leg in some extremely basic way. For instance, for the calf spank, You sit on the floor with your legs extended in front of you and pull your knees to the chest and then push them back out to the floor with a slap, kind of like Pilates. Repeat 50 Mm -hmm. times. This is supposed to correct fat knees. Mm -hmm. So, And a lot of these exercises are also just simple 
light stretching, you know, stand against the wall with your arms above your head and bend slightly to the left and then bend slightly to the right. And uh, there is no cardio in these exercises, Cass. I mean, you know, really the only exercises recommended that we would recognize today are hidden away and yet another exercise pamphlet that's not the main one. You know, I told you it was a little confusing how to use the course. Um, and, and those exercises that we would recognize are sit-ups, which is classified as being an advanced exercise, and also some leg lifts. So, you know, long story in short, they're, they're basically promoting light calisthenics, mm-hmm. stretching, and a lot of surprising amount of rolling around on the floor. <laughs> I mean, at at one point they even say, quote, do these exercises every day, but never to a point of fatigue. Oh, no, because in other words, these exercises are befitting of a lady because we all know ladies do not sweat, April. That's right. Nor do they get fatigued. Women have, of course, always done physical activity, but it's really interesting to study the history of the development of exercise in the 19th and 20th centuries and how this duality emerges that designates and separates acceptable female activity from that of her male counterparts. So exercising really this calculated exertion of energy, sweating, etc. that came with physical activity in general was long assigned to the exclusivity of the male domain and just was really not seen as feminine at all. Women, after all, are fragile, docile creatures. Yeah, and even the response to women taking up this new fad of bicycling in the late 19th century is an excellent example of these type of like societal anxieties surrounding women exercising. You know, this is so good. Critics back in the 19th century claimed that if you were riding a bike, it could give women, quote unquote, bicycle face. Oh, no. No, 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 no bicycle face. And, And basically it was like, an, a strained expression, you know, because you're like moving forward with velocity through space. Oh, no. You know, it's going to push your face back too much. Um, and then you have other alarmists like the British author and physician Arabella Neely, who was very concerned that too much exercise could result in the loss of a woman's being able to have children. So don't exercise because then you can't get pregnant. Yep, you know. You know. Your main purpose in life is to have children, <laughs> exactly. so don't don't exercise. And we talked about uh, Martha Verbrugge earlier. She also writes in her article that we cited that after basketball, as we know it was invented in the 1890s, women players were confined to small areas on the court and only allowed to bounce the ball once in fear that they could overexert themselves and therefore dislodge their uterus. So Martha writes that throughout the 20th century, Americans were anxious about active female bodies, and clearly this unease masked deeper apprehensions about femininity, sexuality, and race. So since the late 1800s, American society has required girls and women to present themselves from their outward appearance rather than their inner character. And that being said, there are certainly people who supported and promoted physical exercise for women. Um, In 1903, Vogue magazine reviewed a new book about athletics and outdoor sports for women, saying, quote, women can make themselves equal in weight and physical strength to men without the loss of femininity, end quote. So, Cass, you know, at this time, if women were going to exercise, it was kind of thought that it had to be like a feminine form of exercise. And and this immediately brings to mind the quote-unquote strong woman, Katie Sanduina, the quote-unquote Lady Hercules. And she was super famous for her strength, but somehow or another, she always made sure to maintain this incredibly 
feminine appearance. And this is just really, you know, underscoring those anxieties at the time of, of like, you know, that if, if a woman were to lift weight, that she's all of a sudden going to become mannish looking. Exactly. I think, I think I think this is actually something that some women still believe today. Yeah, it's quite possible. A lot of these things still exist today. Yeah. I'm glad actually that you mentioned her because her rise to fame in the years of the early 20th century coincides with the development of the study of the science of exercise. And with this rise, you do start to see the stigma surrounding women working out changing. And it's in the 1920s when the fashionable body Ideal shifts away from that voluptuous, curvaceous silhouette favored during the Edwardian era towards that narrow-hipped, flat-chested look that we really start to see exercising promoted within the pages of fashion magazines. Vogue actually introduced the concept of what is now essentially the modern-day gym to its readers in 1925, covering the one, yes, one fitness studio catering to women in Manhattan, saying, quote, it may be a new suggestion to many, who have not yet experienced the physical and mental satisfaction that comes from a sensible health course. But again, this idea evolves that exercise is okay as long as it's clearly delineated within the feminine sphere, a.k.a. the home. Yeah, and and this is really a far cry from the kinds of things that we are also accustomed to doing today at the gym, you know, jogging, weightlifting, uh, boot camp, kickboxing. And when you compare that to some of these other exercises that the DeBerry course was promoting at the time, which were exercising by way of doing your housekeeping. Um, You know, stretch when you hang your laundry, stretch when you put away your dishes, or when you lay out your tablecloths. And I would just like to point out that it was tablecloths, plural, right? (laughs) And one of the other things, Cass, that was really funny, was they were talking about when you're going around in the morning and making the beds up in the house, that you should always keep your feet stationary because, quote, walking around the bed will merely wear you out and have you complaining at the end of the day that housework kills me. Don't make your bed the hard way. Remember, a tired, bedraggled wife is often irritating to even a lucky husband. (sighs) In other words. (laughs) I know. Sigh. Deep sigh. Breathe, everyone. Breathe. (laughs) The art is in working all day, but not looking like you worked all day. We certainly don't want our hardworking husbands coming home to any tired, bedraggled wives, April. Yeah. And and part of that also here um, is posture, which is another big focus of the program. Because over and over and over and over again, they really emphasize that you want us, quote, spine that hangs correctly from behind your ears. This young woman will get pretty much everything she craves out of life. Plenty of poise from being accepted at her very attractive face value and the zip that gets her jobs in bow. Again, (laughs) boyfriends. This time with an X on the end, so it's multiple boyfriends. (laughs) And, And of course, Cass, as you know, with any good posture corrective program, there are also these ubiquitous walking around with a book on your head exercises. Yes. Um, particularly up and down stairs. And one of my favorite things is you're also encouraged to hang a mirror over your kitchen sink so that you can check your posture while you're doing dishes. And you should also check your facial expressions and remember to smile even if no one else is home. Wow. <laughs> it feels like we're wandering into some serious Stepford Wives territory here at this point. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my all-time favorites. The original, of course. 
Although I have to say, it's certainly giving me flashbacks to my childhood of my grandmother telling me to sit up straight at the dinner table. Um, don't rest your elbows on the dinner table. Uh, but I have to say that this has stuck with me to this day. And perhaps it's not something I want to put on my resume, but I am all for <laughs> men and women checking their posture. I think it suggests confidence and stature, of course, but it's also just good for your spine. Especially when you consider how many of us just spend our days looking down at our computers and phones. I mean, this can really translate to long-term issues. So check yourself. Mm-hmm. And while we're on the topic of good posture cast, we're going to get into some of my favorite parts of the success course, the beauty angle, right after this sponsor break. Can't wait. <laughs> Welcome back. Cass, the beauty angle isn't really so much about posture um, as it was part of the program's beauty routine. And what this was is that you're lying down with your feet elevated about 18 inches above your head. And the reason that you're doing this, they say, is, quote, to make gravity work for you because the blood supply to the face and neck is temporarily increased augmenting the amount of nourishment available to the tissues during this period, end quote. Hmm. I mean, I guess it's kind of like when you're supposed to elevate the feet if someone's in shock, but that's really about increasing blood flow to the cardiovascular system and not the face. I I have to say, I actually do lie down with my feet in the air sometimes against the wall because it actually feels really good to take all that pressure off of my feet, but I never thought about trying to get all of that blood flow to my face. <laughs> to your face. <laughs> or your face. Well, I mean, you might be really into what they did at the salon school then in that case because they had special chairs that had a recline. And if you happen to be there getting a beauty treatment, like a facial or something else, they actually put you in a 45-degree angle with your head at the lowest point. And it was their recommendation that participants do the beauty angle for at least one hour a day. At least. <laughs> I may or may not be able to get behind this. If I, I suppose if I could stretch and get a mani-pedi, I might be a convert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know how that would work, though, stretching and getting a mani-pedi. But while you're in the beauty angle, this is also something quite interesting. You're also instructed to talk to yourself out loud. At least 10 times, you're supposed to repeat, I am lovely and deserve the happiness that loveliness can bring. Repeat. I actually love that because I'm all for daily mantras and affirmations. I, I guess I'm just not convinced that women need all of these familiar beauty trappings to achieve self-worth. That, my friend, comes from the inside. But yes, we are all quite lovely. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and I don't know if you would be down for this cast, but they also say that you should multitask while practicing your beauty angle. Oh, thank God, because you had me a little worried there, April. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do with that hour? You know, you can make phone calls. You can pay your bills. You can study cookbooks and plan menus. Um, and definitely read good books so that you will have interesting things to talk to men about. I mean, come on more about that in a bit because you know there's going to be a, a whole section in, of this podcast about keeping and catching a man but also catch you can do the beauty angle anywhere would you like a few recommendations i would because i'm clearly going to be trying this soon yes well you can take your ironing board out and turn it upside down and put your feet on it you can also use a log a log mhm mm so <laughs> or the slope of a of a beach or a lawn. 
So now you're doing this outside in public. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> you can also use the angle of your cellar door. So if any of our listeners happen to have cellar doors, now you know what it's for, right? <laughs> this is actually bringing to mind the bad from a couple years ago of planking. There are definitely surviving images of me doing that myself. So, you know, dress listeners, if you want to send us pictures of your beauty angle practice, we are all for it. <laughs> Hashtag beauty angle. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and there's an additional benefit because apparently psychiatrists and physicians the course says, um, actually promote the beauty angle as a cure for chronic worrying. Oh, yes. The ever-present attempt to calm women's nerves. At least we've uh, progressed from the promotion of opiates to exercises. But uh, the beauty angle is surely not the end-all, be-all of the beauty routine portion of the program because wasn't this whole thing started as an avenue to actually promote the DuBerry cosmetic products? Yes, of course. So every day in your daily lessons, there is also a specific beauty routine that incorporates a cleansing cream, a skin freshener, a lubricating cream, and and all of these are to be applied in distinct motions, right, that are detailed in the illustrations. And making, applying the products in certain directions and at certain angles was thought to discourage the development of wrinkles. And there's also a whole host of other products mentioned in the course, like a special preparation exfoliant. There's a rose cream mask. And not to mention makeup, loads and loads of makeup, which gets introduced at weeks five and week six. I do love a good morning routine. I think mine's up to about 10 steps at this point, which may or may not be a little excessive. Um, but I'm assuming this is a complete line of DuBerry makeup. Yes, the whole shebang. Mm-hmm. You know it. And this is the 1940s after all. And because your lipstick should always match your nail polish in the 1940s. And also I quote, a new dress deserves its own powder and lipstick. So Cass, there you go. Like if your nail polish and your lipstick have to match and you're getting a new powder, boom, boom, boom. (laughs) It's like three products alone that are getting sold just because you have a new dress. And I know this is making us both think of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, a TV show on Amazon that we've mentioned uh, a few times on dress, but Midge's lipstick and nail polish always match. And this episode made me think a lot, a lot, a lot about her. Yeah, and particularly the scene where she sneaks out of bed and does her makeup yeah. and comes back to bed. <laughs> and this is a real thing. I'm quoting to Barry again when I say, don't discuss makeup, don't make up in public, and remember that your husband is your fondest public. Never let him see you making up. And they also go on to say, or any other members of your family, like your kids or anyone else. Uh, you, know, you know, it's like Cass. It's like, okay, you can do the beauty angle in public. But you can lay upside down in public, but don't let anyone see you putting on lipstick. Just saying. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know you and I are both big proponents of self-care, but I mean, what this means is really specific to an individual. I'm sure it's very clear to our listeners that the tone of the course doesn't seem to be geared for women doing these routines and exercises, but for themselves, but for the people around them, which is just not cool. Yeah, very much so. And and this is made no more clear than the section called, quote, how to lose your man slash win his admiration. So there are specific things that are recommended in this section. And Cass, I think that we maybe we should read some pointers from the list of things categorically not to do. Would you like to do that? And try and stifle our rage at the same time. Please proceed, April. 
Mm-hmm. Things categorically not to do. Number one, talk about yourself. Number two, leave lipstick or powder on his dinner jacket. Quote, he's likely to hate you for that. He'll put you down as stupidly inconsiderate. End quote. Number three, have a pimple. <laughs> God. Number four, pull at your girdle. Number five, have an errant hair on the back of your dress. Okay, I'm just going to go on record and say I have done all of these things and probably at the same time. <laughs> yeah, who hasn't? <gasps> who hasn't? And what about dudes? Come on. Same. Uh, uh, but Cass, the, the list also includes things about how to do better. Um, number one of which is talk about him, never looked bored, never tell him he's repeated himself, encourage him to do all the talking. You can get your surplus chat with your women friends later. <laughs> number two, have so much pep and vitality. You're ready to go with him anywhere at any time. He'll adore it. Number three, be a perfect dance partner. Number four, have a beautiful complexion and hair so you can impress his friends. <laughs> yeah, not even him. Not even him. His oh friends. Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, number five, which is kind of cheeky, don't tell him you took this course. <laughs> oh, but let's end on a high note. Number six, fill every moment of every day that you are beautiful. Uh, well, I mean, that's that's nice in theory, but not in practicality. Like, <laughs> I will admit that I didn't wash my hair this morning, so. I know. Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a few other kind of gems of pointers in the course, and these are, this is only a fraction of them, and some of them are rather upsetting, I will have to say. Um, One of them is that you should never sleep on a pillow because it might cause face wrinkles, Um, that crossing your legs causes baggy knees, so instead of crossing your legs. You should cross your ankles instead. Um, They tell you to keep your tummy tight when you're brushing your teeth, um, that if you have a job um, and you're feeling stressed out, don't eat lunch, just drink some juice. Uh, This one's really upsetting. Their best tip for, for entering your room is to not be fat. Wow. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. And, and yet one more really great one. And I'm quoting, The most exciting, enticing thing a woman possesses are her eyelashes and the way she uses them. What is the use of looking coyly up at a big, great man if you have no eyelashes to curl? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that this is literally all surface. Every single piece is surface. There's actually nothing in here about the women themselves being happy at all. No, no. No, and 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 uh, but I will say that there were some qualities to the program that kind of endeared me to some of the participants. And there were a lot of participants. I mean, I think the course ran from 1940 to 1948, and there was an estimated 100,000 women that participated. And I think you mentioned that there was this sort of female community that sprung up around the course. Yeah, and, and the 100,000 women um, was was something that Catherine talked about in her article. Um, some of the ads that I read for Dewberry at the same time say that it was up to 300,000 women. So uh, there's a little bit of scholarly debate about, like, <laughs> if that was true or not. So, um, but the copy I bought, um, I've actually looked at two copies. We have one at FIT, but then I found a personal copy, which I bought off eBay. And this belonged to Mrs. George M. Crosum of Flossmore, Illinois. And the interesting thing to me, Cass, because I'd already looked at our copy at FIT first, um, was that this other copy I got 
came with a couple years worth of these post-grad newsletters. And they were fascinating because they do this thing where they publish news about prior graduates of the course. Like they talked about when Elizabeth Gray Stewart published her first novel and had her first baby in the same month. Good for her. Yeah, I know. And there were also letter writing prizes for women who wrote about their personal testimonies um, about how completing the course had bettered their life. Um, And some of them are actually really incredibly touching. There's this one from this teenage girl who had recently emigrated from Iran, and she wrote in to talk about how she found the course invaluable in helping her assimilate into her high school in upstate New York. And and she, she kind of ends her letter with this being super excited to have recently been named the best-dressed girl in school. <laughs> so, I mean, people were having, you know, positive associations with the course. So I want to be a little bit cautious about in, in entirely shredding, um, you know, the program to pieces. Because, you know, it's... Hindsight's 2020. Exactly. And it's always essential to always put things into context. And we have to remember that this course is very much a product of its time. These are very different times. And its entire impetus was to sell beauty products after all, although it clearly developed into something more. I mean, the second wave of feminism was still more than a couple of decades off. So I think it's a little easy for us to look back on this now and realize how deeply patriarchal this type of cultural indoctrination was, but it just was not recognized as such at this time. And and that's really important Mm to note and point out. Yes. And that said, just when I thought that we were going to be able to end this episode on like this really positive kind of fuzzy feel-good note. Then also, I I read about a 1948 event that was held at the Waldorf Astoria in New York, where the company invited beauty editors from all over the country for a luncheon, which mainly was fruit salad. And also, next to each place setting, they placed a tape measure, and everyone was supposed to measure their waist, and prizes were going to be given to the ideal waistline, which which had been assigned as being 12 inches smaller than the bust. And Duberry was prepared to give 30 prizes, but only five women at the entire luncheon qualified. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Confirmation of how completely arbitrary these types of standards are and always have been. Even the beauty editors did not measure up. I'm sure the people who worked at DuBerry did not measure up. Mm-hmm. And uh, April, you know, this episode really got me thinking about how the makeover genre is still alive and well today. Television, of course, is chock full of these sorts of shows. I know uh, many of us will probably remember Extreme Makeover or the one that was all about plastic surgery, The Swan. Oh, Yeah. That one was disturbing, to say the least. Yeah. Um, but but I don't think all of these uh, makeover kind of type things are entirely bad, you know, because some of them actually focus on helping women boost their confidence after a tragedy or a trauma, et cetera. Um, and, and come on, Cass, we have to all admit to the fact of that the appeal of the big reveal is true, right? I can I can remember being like, oh, I'm going to go to the store and get groceries, but I can't I can't leave because I got to watch the big reveal, yeah. you know. <laughs> It's just something that's kind of innate in all of us, I think, that that we're curious about this unlocked, quote-unquote, potential in ourselves. Right. And I guess the question is, what is the best way to achieve this? And is it something we are doing for ourselves 
or for others. I mean, plastic surgery is okay. Dieting is okay. Working out's okay. It's just the answer is different for everyone. And that is okay. And that's important that it, you do it for you. So, I mean, what was your takeaway from all of this, April? Did you undergo a massive transformation? Um, I cannot say that I did. I clearly didn't stick to the diet, but perhaps if I had, maybe I would have lost a little bit of weight. Um, and as far as the exercises go, given my normal workout routine, I didn't really see any changes of just like flopping my arm around. <laughs> uh, but but two of the things that I did take away really were about being more conscious of my posture, especially when I'm sitting at my desk. Um, and I definitely saw results from sticking close to my own version of their beauty routine. So um, my, my skin is very happy right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but But I think that the most important takeaway wasn't really physical cast. It's just that this experience underscored the fact that there's not one type of program, diet, or fad that works for everyone. Um, We're all so unique. We all come from so many different cultures, histories, backgrounds. Um, You know, uh, do what works for you. Yeah, or do nothing. Be happy with who you are. (laughs) I mean, this is what makes us human, right? That we're all so incredibly unique and different. And dress listeners, that does it for us today. But we really hope you remember to cherish the beauty inside yourself next time you get dressed. Please join us on Thursday for our Fashion History Mystery Minisode, where we answer your questions. And if you'd like to pose a question, you can write to us at dressed at highheartmedia.com or direct messages on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where we also post images for each week's episode. This is also our Twitter handle. And if you'd like some fashion history swag, check out our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dress. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. I am currently obsessed with my Poiré t-shirt. Um, and last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.